Okay, here we are then. Um, passing the baton, series 2, number 32, and it's the 19th of December 2009. And the title of this teaching is Celebration of the Name, the Word and the Blood. And I want to start with a declaration. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Amen to that. We see the government of God in our lives, so let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you that you've counted us worthy to be included in your covenant people. Father, we are so aware that salvation is of the Jews. And Father, we want to recognise the Jewish nation as being your chosen people and us as being the engrafted branch. Father, we thank you that in that engrafting we become the bride of Christ. So we bless you that you've shown us the way of salvation. And that is in the name of your only Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the incarnation. What a wonderful plan. We celebrate this day and every day the power in the name, the word and the blood of Jesus. And we thank you that from everlasting to everlasting you had a plan to save mankind from their sin. We bless you, we glorify, we exalt you. Glory to God. Amen. Well, I really got excited while I was working on this study and I meditated on the fact of the Incarnation. What an amazing God to take human form and weakness and come into the world to save sinners. It's breathtaking, brilliant, brilliant God. For us then, it really doesn't matter when the Christ, the Anointed One, the Promised Messiah of the Jews was born. We celebrate all the time and give glory to God in the highest, declaring on earth peace and goodwill to all men from God the Father. That message is still extant. Grace is still present on the unbeliever to believe and receive the good news of the gospel. For us, we can declare the government of God in our lives and upon our lives in the name and blood of Jesus. We declare that we are the redeemed of the Lord and we walk in all the freedom and blessing and favour that that means. And all God's people said Amen. So, let's start with the name. What's in a name? What's in a name? So I'm going to spend some time on this section and look not only at the name of Jesus but at characters in the Bible and some of the names of God which we see in the Old Testament. I'm also going to show you some instances of Jesus appearing in the Old Testament which we call Christophanes or Theophanes, big names. Starting then with the angelic visitation prior to the birth of Jesus. The angel said, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That might seem a bit of a mystery to you at this moment, or maybe it doesn't. 
but we'll have a look at it in a moment. So the first scripture is Matthew 1, 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother, mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, through, by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her until she brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. Literally, you shall call his name Yeshua, which means salvation, for he will Yoshaya, or save, his people from their sins. This play on words is the first time we see Jesus referred to by his name as the Saviour of the world. His name, Jesus, Yeshua, literally means to save or salvation, and it's a variant of Joshua. So in saying you shall call him Jesus, the angel was proclaiming his name and his destiny at the same time. The Saviour of the world has come. God incarnate, God made flesh, Jesus, the visible member of the Godhead. If you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father, he said in John 14:9. But his incarnation was not the first time he'd been seen on the earth, as we will discover later. And then we have Luke's report of the same angel talking with Mary in Luke 1:31. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And likewise, the birth of John the Baptist. Luke 1.59 on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he's to be called John. A break with tradition here too. You shall call his name John. The angel gives specific instructions about the naming of the coming babe. Why John? Have you ever wondered why the angel was so specific? about the child's name. Here's why. The name, remember, has a meaning, and this one means Jehovah is a gracious giver. 
In the birth of John, who was related to Jesus, the Lord was sending a forerunner to announce the coming of the Messiah to his people, the Jews, according to that which had been prophesied in Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice of one who cries, Prepare in the wilderness the way of the Lord, clear away the obstacles, make straight and smooth in the desert a highway for our God. John arrives, right on time, as prophesied, to prepare the way of the Messiah, the Christ, the gift of God, to save not only the Jewish nation, as we see later, but all mankind who would believe. Jehovah is indeed a gracious giver. And this is not the first time that we see names describing function or destiny. And for this we need to go back to Genesis 3, verse 20. And Adam, literally read man, called his wife's name Eve, literally life or living, because she was the mother of all living. Their names in this passage describe what they look like, red earth, and in Eve's case, her destiny and purpose, mother of all living. Moving on then to Genesis 5, verse 25, and reading from the New King James Version. Methuselah lived 187 years and begot Lamech. After he begot Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. Lamech lived 182 years and had a son and he called his name Noah saying this one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. After he begot Noah, Lamech lived 595 years and had sons and daughters. Methuselah's name means, when I am gone, it will happen. And I don't think people would have ignored that. They'd have been asking and saying, well, what's going to happen then, Meth? What's going on? Why are you named like that? Ask Noah, would have been his answer. He will comfort you, or give you rest, as some versions have it, as his name implies. And what was it that came? When he'd gone, well, the flood. When Methuselah died, the earth was flooded. Again, in the Old Testament, we see names given to people representing either their birth or their inheritance or something else. 1 Chronicles 4.9 now, Jabez was more honourable than his brothers. His mother had named him Jabez, saying, I gave birth to him in pain. So Jabez' name means pain, and hence you hear him saying in 1 Chronicles 4.10, And Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me indeed, and enlarge my territory, that your hand would be with me, and that you keep me from evil, that I may not cause pain. So God granted him what he requested. Though his name meant pain, he didn't want to be one who would. And lastly, as I think I have made the point about names, <coughs> excuse me, it wouldn't be complete without 1 Samuel 25:25, And here we find someone who really lives down to his name. I mean, of course, Nabal. 
And here is Abigail, his beautiful wife, whom David would later marry, speaking of her husband. May my lord pay no attention to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name is Fool, and folly goes with him. How'd you like to be called Fool? So there is a lot in a name. And there is power and authority in the name of Jesus. You will never be able to cast out a demon in the name of Christ. Christ is a title and it means anointed one, the same as Messiah in the Hebrew. The demonic will not listen to you. It will be a case of Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? You'll find that in Acts 19, 13 to 15. Some of the Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Always makes me laugh, that one. If you're going to command them, command them in the name of Jesus, without referring to anybody else. So, there is power and authority in the name of Jesus. And there is keeping power in that name. To see this, you'll need to go to John 17, verse 6 to 12 in the NASB. So, starting from verse 6 in John 17. I have manifested your name. And to manifest means to make something evident by showing or demonstrating it very clearly. To the men you gave me out of the world, they were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. There is keeping power in the name of Jesus the name which the Father has given him. And the next scripture is Jude 24, uh, where again we see that he is able to keep you. Now to him, who is able to keep you from falling. We are kept by the power of God unto salvation. 1 Peter 1 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith, for salvation, 
ready to be revealed in the last time and the emphasis in that is mine okay so what about the names of God uh, this always thrills me I mean I could go on forever about this but I won't we'll just look at a few throughout the Old Testament God progressively revealed himself to his people through specific names each name showing a deeper revelation of who he wanted to be for his people and revealing to them who he was to them and for them at that point the final revelation of course is found right at the end of the book the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must shortly take place any of you who are frightened of the book of Revelation the enemy is keeping you out of it this was given to us to show us what must shortly take place because we're not going to be around to see it so there's no need for us to fear it it is for our upbuilding for our encouragement to see the majesty and the supremacy of the Lord that we serve so Revelation 1 <clears throat> 1 to 3 the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who testifies to everything he saw that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy blessed you're blessed and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near he is a God who reveals himself continuously and consistently to his people and every time he gave a greater revelation his name was redemptive so it described salvation deliverance rescue release victory liberation emancipation and recovery authority and power and Jesus our Redeemer and Lord is every one of these names to us and more there is much for us yet to possess the very first name we encounter is in Genesis 1 verse 1 in the Amplified I'm reading now in the beginning God prepared formed fashioned and created the heavens and the earth in the beginning God the Hebrew translation of the word for God is Elohim E-L-O-H-I-M and is the name given to God when dealing with an act of power specifically creative power he is described as the most powerful of all the powerful ones whenever he's referred to within the context of creation or creativity this is the name that is used God Elohim and it is a plural it includes the three because the I am on the end gives us a plural so this is the very first revelation of God on the fourth word of Genesis it's the first revelation of God and it presupposes that he is it does not explain him it doesn't go on to say who he is it just says in the beginning God and take the change out of that Elohim power as Louis Giglio says you wouldn't have wanted to be standing there when God said let there be light and light came out of his mouth at 186,000 miles 
a second the most powerful of all the powerful ones good one to remember when you're hard up against it I think the next name we encounter is a little further on in Genesis 2 verse 7 in the King James Version and the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul and here we find that in the first reference to the relationship between God and man he'd formed man and he's called Lord God and God reveals himself here as the Lord God and that's capital letters L-O-R-D which is the Hebrew tetragrammaton Yahweh Y-H-W-H Orthodox Jews regard this name even today as too sacred to be pronounced we say it as Yahweh which we have actually transliterated Jehovah or someone did I don't know his name by putting vowel sounds in between the consonants so we get the name Jehovah but that's what we're saying when we speak that word so here God reveals himself as the Lord God so what's the difference the primary meaning of Lord capital L-O-R-D Jehovah is the self-existent one literally as in Exodus 3:14, and this is the NIV God said to Moses I am who I am this is what you're to say to the Israelites I am has sent me to you that is who he is therefore the eternal I am he is the eternal self-existent one who reveals himself it's significant for us that the fact that the first appearance of the name Jehovah in scripture follows the creation of man it points to the divine desire to be known and in relationship with his creation it was God Elohim who said let us make man in our image Genesis 1:26. but when man is created and given his mandate to rule creation it is the Lord God Jehovah Elohim a compound name now who acts and this indicates the special relationship of God to man which the rest of the scriptures go on to unfold so if we put it together in this verse we have the most powerful of all the powerful ones who is eternally self-existent revealed to us as part of the ongoing revelation of God's name to his people I find it absolutely brilliant because our language just does not reveal to us where it says God or Lord or Lord God or Almighty God it does not reveal to us what is actually being said so the next name we see of God is Genesis 14:17 to 19 and reading now from the New King James Version and the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh that is the king's valley after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him then Melchizedek king of Salem brought out bread and wine he was the priest of the Most High 
God. I'm sorry, I'll read that again. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Ana, Eskol, and Mamre. Let them take their portion. So here we have Abraham, not yet Abraham, meeting Melchizedek, the king of Salem, or Jerusalem, a Gentile priest who is a type of Jesus, the king priest. Melchizedek knew God and calls him God Most High, here we come with another name, the possessor of heaven and earth. In the Hebrew what we have here is El El Yon, capital E L, then E L Y O N, literally Most High God or Highest God. A beautiful title given by one who knew him and to whom he was appointed priest. This is the first revelation of this name, and Abraham, meeting with Melchizedek after returning from battle, is blessed in the name of the Most High God, who Melchizedek states is the possessor of heaven and earth. This revelation causes Abraham to offer tithes from the spoil of battle. So here we have another, another name of God, which is the possessor, the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. So now we've got ourselves three. This is the first recorded time that giving to God is mentioned and sets the precedent in the Old Testament for the tithing system which God instituted later for Israel. However, Abraham was already vowed to God he won't take anything from man lest they say they made Abraham rich. And in verse 21 he refuses to take what is being offered to him. Abraham showing here his integrity it's only a small test and one which could pass unnoticed, but God sees these things and Abraham passes the test with flying colours. Incidentally, um, this Most High God, Possessor of Heaven and Earth, is also seen in Deuteronomy 32 verse 8, um, dividing the nations and distributing the land as he wills. Who then is the great territorial spirit? It is the prerogative of the Most High to distribute the earth according to whatever principle he chooses. That, beloved, is sovereignty. Moving on then to uh, Genesis 15 and the classic passage of Abraham's conversation with God and more names are revealed. So we'll look now at Genesis 15 um, verses 1 to 20 again in the New King James Version. After, the word of, after these things the word of the Lord, Jehovah, came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abraham, I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. But Abraham said, Lord God, 
And here Abraham introduces another name, Lord God. And notice in your Bibles that Lord is not in capital letters, only the first letter is. And this word that we have here is the word Adonai, and it means master. So he's actually saying Master Elohim, uh, Master Most Powerful One. What will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abraham said, Look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord, notice now that the text uses the name Jehovah in response to Abraham's Adonai. So the first time we saw it, it was Lord God. Abraham calls him Lord God, capital L, small O-R-D. And then when God responds, the word of the Lord, all capitals, it uses the name Jehovah in response to Abraham's Adonai, came to him saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Now look towards heaven and count the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, Jehovah the self-existent one, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord, Yahweh, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. Then he said, Lord God, and again Abraham uses Master Elohim, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him, and cut them in two down the middle, and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell on him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass, when the sun went down and it was dark, that, behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. So here we have yet another name introduced, Adonai, Master, also used for man in the Old Testament or as husband when it isn't capitalized. We see the same thing in the New Testament that Jesus is both Master and Husband to his church. 
And there's another example of this when Moses has a dialogue with the Lord in Exodus 4, 10 to 12. He refers to the Lord there as Master, saying, Oh, my Lord, Adonai, I am not eloquent, etc., when God has to remind him who made his mouth. And because in this instance power, not service, is in question as God is commissioning Moses, it's not the Lord, Adonai, but Jehovah who answers him. Very interesting. Look it up for yourself and start to see the difference in the printing in your Bible, which signifies a different name. So Genesis 17.1 in the New King James Version and one of the most beautiful and all-encompassing names of God that we find in Scripture and so, so wrongly uh, translated for us as Brits. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. The Hebrew here is El Shaddai. El, the strong one, Shaddai, is formed from the Hebrew word Shad, meaning breast, invariably used in the scriptures for a woman's breast. Shaddai, therefore, primarily means the breasted one. Doesn't mean he's got bosoms. It means that he is Shaddai because he is nourisher and satisfier of his people. He's the nurturer, the nourisher and the all-sufficient one. He is sufficient for any need and every eventuality, being the source of their nurture and development. He would be, wouldn't he, because he created them. El Shaddai therefore not only enriches but makes fruitful and this is nowhere better illustrated than in this first occurrence of the name. To a man ninety and nine years old and as good as dead, Hebrews 11.12, El Shaddai comes and promises fruitfulness and not only that but multiplication. God intervenes when all human hope and ability is gone and provides not only a son to those barren, but a nation. This is our God, the most powerful of all the powerful ones, the self-existent one and the sustainer and upholder of all things, the nourisher and satisfier of his people. This is the one whose incarnation we celebrate every single day of the year. Because whatever name you choose of God the Father is the image of God the Son. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So if Father is El Shaddai, so is Jesus. All these names can be applied to our bridegroom. Genesis 17.5 and he says to Abraham, no longer shall your name be called Abraham, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. So by the addition of an H to his name, Abraham becomes Abraham, the father of many nations 
father of a multitude, and his name reflects this, Abraham. Names are so important in the Bible, it's regrettable that our English translations fall so far short of the proper meaning of the names of God. Our language just doesn't have the ability to express such things as does the Hebrew and indeed the Greek. If you're interested in uh, making a study of names, some of them anyway, there is a lovely little book still in print called The Names of God and it's by a man called Nathan Stone and he gives the ones that I've told you already Elohim, Jehovah El Shaddai, Adonai and then he goes into Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Rohe, Jehovah Nisi and all, all the rest of those so it's really really worth having and it'll make your study of the word so much more fruitful so introducing the word let's go on to look at the word we've looked at the name now let's look at the word definitions first then word is logos in greek l-o-g-o-s and there are two uses of the word the first is jesus as the living word capital l capital w and then there is the Bible as the written word which the Holy Spirit enlightens and enlivens. And the scriptures to note here to show the difference, let's look firstly at the name of Jesus, as a, firstly as a name of Jesus as the word, sorry, um, because he is known as the word and it isn't one of his names. Revelation 19, now right to the other end of the book. Uh, and 11 to 13 in the NIV and here we see uh, the rider on a white horse I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true with justice he judges and makes war his eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns this is gentle Jesus meek and mild he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The Word, as the truth, is a person, and his name is Jesus. One jo sorry, John 1, 1 to 5, New King James Version, I'll repeat that. Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1 to 5, in the New King James Version, headed up the eternal word in my version. In the beginning was the word, capital W, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, 
and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God, I'm on to verse 6 now, whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of the light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world didn't know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, because he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. And 1 John 1, this time it is the first letter of John. 1 John 1 verse 1 in the NIV. And mine's headed up the word of life. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. And the scriptures which are referred to as the word of God, the scriptures are referred to as the word of God, uh, not the word of life, which is capital W. Uh, Luke 5, verse 1, New American Standard Bible headed up the first disciples. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing round him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Genesaret. Acts 4.31, again New American Standard, and when they prayed, the place they had gathered together, where they had gathered together, was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Acts 8.14, New American Standard. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John. Acts 13.7, New American Standard. Who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Acts 16.6, New American Standard, they passed through Phrygian and the Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So there we have the difference between the word as a name for Jesus and the word of God which we call the scriptures, the written word. And the word of God is described as both bread and water. Let's look at the Old Testament first. 
Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, looking in the New American, uh, sorry, <laughs> not doing very well here, in the uh, New International Version. Men does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And in the New Testament, John 6, verses 25 to 49, again in the NIV, Jesus, the bread of life, headed up. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works that God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our fathers ate manna in the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and you still do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that is given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will rise, raise him up at the last day. And uh, Jeremiah fifteen sixteen, one of my own personal favourites in the New King James Version. Your words were found and I ate them, and your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. The word of God is nourishment to us. It's referred to as bread, which is a staple food. And Jeremiah says it's the joy and rejoicing of his heart. What's he saying? He's saying, I've taken it into my very inmost being. I've worked it in and I've worked it through. Your word is what I live on. It should be what we live on too. It's also referred to as water. And you find this in John 15, verse 3, in the New King James Version. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. And here Jesus is speaking of the word washing the disciples. And Paul, in Ephesians 6:26, speaking of the church, he says that he, Jesus, might sanctify and cleanse her, with the washing of water by the word. The water of the word by which we are cleansed is therefore imperative 
that we don't neglect the reading and the study of the written word, the scriptures, allowing the Holy Spirit to quicken the word to us because by it we are fed, cleansed and transformed. Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us this. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. But that's just part of our journey. We must also become more and more acquainted with the living word, Jesus, through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Jesus said when he comes, John fifteen twenty six, when the helper comes whom I will send you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. So the Holy Spirit is going to testify or bear witness to Jesus and also give life to the written word. I'm sure there's not one of you listening uh, that hasn't had scripture jump out at you when God is convicting you of something or showing you something or revealing himself. We say it jumped off the page, don't we? That's the Holy Spirit's work to show you. He wrote it, he's showing you. So 2 Corinthians 3, 6, New American Standard again, who made us, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. There's a difference then between the name of Jesus when he is described as the living word or the word of God and the written word of God, which we call the scriptures, which the Holy Spirit enlivens to us. Jesus tells us in John 15, 1-7, New American Standard again, that he's the vine and we're the branches. I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit he prunes it, so that it may bear more fruit. Here it comes again. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone doesn't abide in me, is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they're burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. That if his words abide in us, we will ask what we will, and it will be done for us. This is what is known as a conditional promise. It is conditional upon his word abiding in us and us abiding in him. This is why it's so important that we allow the word to become flesh on us, that we're doers of the word and not hearers only. 
There's a promise attached here that can only be obtained by abiding, staying in the place that God has put us, in Christ. This is further reinforced by 1 John 5.14 And this is the confidence, this is the Amplified, the assurance, privilege of boldness which we have in him. We are sure that if we ask anything, make any request according to his will, in agreement with his own plan, he listens and hears us. From this we can see that in abiding lies our confidence in prayer. So if you want your prayer answered, you abide and you find out how to pray in any given circumstance. You pray the prayer, you get the answer because you are asking it in line with His will. John 17.3 in the Amplified and this is eternal life. It means to know, perceive, recognize, become acquainted with and understand you, the only true and real God. And likewise to know Him, Jesus, as the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah, whom you have sent. There is a difference between knowing and knowledge. We can acquire knowledge but not know. Jesus is the living word and he requires that we both know him and his father. To know in this sense is to progressively perceive, know and understand and become more intimately acquainted with someone. It's an ongoing process and it's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to reveal this to us both through our communion with him and through the scriptures. Meditation, thinking deeply about the scriptures and what they say is a necessity, not an option. You can meditate anywhere, in the supermarket, doing the washing, ironing, walking the dog. There are innumerable times in the day, in the bath, when you can direct your thoughts to something that will edify you and build you up in your most holy faith. It'll slow you down too. By and large we rush too much and we do nothing properly. We're always tripping over our feet to get onto the next thing. God's not in a hurry. Slow down. The main purpose of biblical meditation then is that we might know him. God intends that we might know him, become progressively more intimately acquainted with him. We've already touched on something of his progressive revelation of his person to his people throughout the Old Testament by the names by which he became known to them. How much more does he want to be known now that the veil has been rent and the middle wall of partition is down. That's Ephesians 2.14. I desire that you might know me. Know me, says the Lord. I want you to know me. The purpose of biblical meditation then is not only knowledge but understanding. So it's right and proper that we should ask the Lord for a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, Ephesians 1.17, and that should continually be our prayer. 
What you think about God, beloved, is the single most important thing in your life. You may not think so, but it is. Because it's the only true, lasting and eternal thing in your life. Everything else will pass away. But the knowledge of Him will never pass away. It behoves us then to redeem the time for the days are evil. Ephesians 5:15 and 16, New King James Version. It's headed up, walk in wisdom. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. If ever that scripture was true, it is now. Great darkness covers the people. The days are evil. We need to redeem the time. We're coming into a new year. How about making some quality decisions to spend your time more wisely in the next 12 months and think on things that have eternal value, not on those that are passing away. And uh, 1 Corinthians 7:31 in the message, just to press it home a bit. I do want to point out, friends, that time is of the essence. There's no time to waste, so don't complicate your lives unnecessarily. Keep it simple. In marriage, grief, joy, whatever, even in ordinary things, your daily routines of shopping and so on, deal as sparingly as possible with the things the world thrusts on you. The world as you see it is on its way out. The world as you see it is on its way out. That's the truth, beloved. The world and its fashion is passing away, as the King James Version puts it. So, 1 Peter 1, 22-24, headed up, the enduring word. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the scripture in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. The word of God lives and abides forever. Everything else is like the flower of the field, it's fading away. Let's just finish this part of the study then with a word from James. And it's James in the message. James 1, 22 to 24 Don't fool yourself into thinking that you're a listener when you're anything but, letting the word go in one ear and out the other. Act on what you hear. Those who hear and don't act are like those who glance in the mirror, walk away and two minutes later have no idea who they are and what they look like. And in the Amplified, but be doers of the word, obey the message, and not merely listeners to it, betraying yourselves into deception by reasoning contrary to the truth. Interestingly, in this passage, in the Amplified and the other translations, word and truth are both capitalised, referring to the living word, Jesus. Hear what he says then, and be sure that you do it. Last scripture for this section, John 2, verse 4, and I'll bet you're ahead of me here. 
whatever he says to you, do it. God's last word is Jesus. <laughs>